Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a powerful passage. It's a beautiful passage. It's inspiring, and it's often horribly misused and applied in ways that are completely out of context. The single verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, has been used to claim in advance absolute success and victory in everything from a high school exam to the Super Bowl to a variety of medical conditions. And when we use the the Philippians 4.13 verse in that way, it seems to me a lot like saying, I can fly if I want because I believe in Jesus. I think most of us would say, yeah, that's probably not what that passage means. It's probably a really bad interpretation, probably some real incorrect theology at work on that mug. Because the Philippians verse, it's not about flying. It's not about winning the lottery. It's not about getting what I want. It's not about achieving what I desire. In fact, that verse is about living a contented life with what I have, with what I already have. We find these words within a section of Paul's letter to the Christians living in Philippi. And and, and he's talking about what it is for him in times when he's lived with a lot, plenty, and times when he has lived in need. And he's saying whether he was fed or whether he was hungry, whether he was strong, whether he was weak, it didn't matter because his strength to do anything that God wanted him to do, everything that God wanted him to do, well, that comes from his intimate relationship with Christ. And so there is a a takeaway principle from this verse, and that's the reminder that uh, whatever we face in life, we will always have the necessary resources to carry out God's will because the strength to do God's will comes from our relationship with Christ. That is a far cry from I can accomplish, gain, have victory in anything, in everything I want, just because I'm a Christian. And that poor interpretation of Philippians 4.13, well, that should be on a coffee mug on the internet. It should not be in the life of a devoted Christ follower, though. But Philippians 4.13, far from the only verse that gets regularly mangled and taken out of context. Plenty of verses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament too that without fuller exploration and explanation, well, that can lead to all kinds of misunderstanding, all kinds of disappointment, all kinds of confusion, bad interpretation and bad application. Today, as we wrap up this True Faith, Real Doubt series, I'm interacting with a submission from someone within the congregation that I think meets one of these easily interpreted, often misinterpreted verses uh, head on. It's a two-part question, and someone asked this. What does having a fear of God mean? And, relatedly, 
How can I live out godly fear? And when I received those, they seemed to me to connect to several almost identical verses that we find in the Old Testament books of Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. And with minor variations, these several verses all match up with what we read in Proverbs 9.10 of the NIV Bible, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, to just read those words today in today's language with today's uh, usage can mislead us in what the word is really saying. If we're not vigilant, we can come to a conclusion, we can make an assumption that the Bible doesn't back up, that is not in the inspired word of God. There's a word, a word that you're probably never going to use ever, but I'm going to give it to you this morning anyway. It's when I interpret the Bible through the lens of my world and what I know in 2024, that word is eisegesis. Eisegesis is not reading the Bible, it's reading into the Bible out of my already established present-day opinions, convictions, and worldviews. And to do that, I have to ignore the original meaning and context of the words of Scripture. You see, the Bible is wonderfully unified. It's one story, one all-embracing story of salvation told through 66 books. It has an Old Testament that we read in anticipation of New Testament fulfillment. It has New Testament fulfillment that we read in light of Old Testament prophecy. And when we take just a verse or a chapter or even a whole book out of its original place, its original understanding, we strip away the audience to which it had been written, the intent of the one who wrote it, the original social setting, the geography even, the political climate, as well as everything that came in Scripture before it and everything that comes in Scripture after it. And we just deal with this. That leads to dangerous interpretation and application. Well, one way to ensure that you're not doing eisegesis, but that you're doing the more responsible work of the opposite of that, which is exegesis, is to let the Bible read you. Here's what I mean by that. Let the Bible inform your understanding. Let the Bible shape your life. Let the Bible... Let the Bible reveal to you what was going on when those words were first spoken and written. See, this may not be something that you've heard before, but we who read the Bible have to remember that the Bible was written for us, not to us. Okay? The Bible was written for us, not to us. There's a difference. The Bible describes God's ultimate plan of salvation through Christ. That's for us. But in the rollout of that story, we have verses like Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Who doesn't love that verse? Who hasn't claimed that verse? It's not for you. I'd have to be a Jewish exile from Jerusalem, trapped in Babylon 600 years before Christ for those words to be for me. I mean, to me. I mean, to me. 
They're not to me, but they are for me. There's a principle there, and the principle is that in God's divine plan and his mighty ability to save us for eternity, God has a plan for us. But that particular verse, it's not to us. But like the word, it is for us. And I know some of us have been told and and maybe have come to love the idea that the Bible is God's love letter to us. Nope. But it is the story of God's great love for us. Let me give you one more example. Acts chapter 2. My kids would laugh if they heard me because they know how much I love to repeat how great Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 is. The composition, the activities of the believers in Jerusalem after Pentecost. It's one of the earliest depictions of what the church was, what the church did. I love these verses. But they were never meant to describe the church of 2024. They were never meant to describe how we serve God. They They just weren't. They they are a true account of the functioning of the first century church as they lived out the gospel of Jesus in the world into which they had been born. But that was a different time. That was a different place. That was then. This is now. For us, this record of the actions of the Acts 2 church is a practical testimony for us to the core principles that today's church should be living out. We should be applying the principles of what we see in Acts 2, not just doing what Acts 2 did. As a church gathered some 2,000 years after the church of Acts 2, we ought to also be a people who are unified under Christ, dedicated to teaching the gospel, to praying, to worshiping, to serving, to loving one another. But we're never going to do it the way that they did it in Acts 2, nor are we supposed to any more than they should have been doing it the way we do it today. Once we understand that about the verses in question, once we just name that, then we can live out the embedded values responsibly in the name of Jesus. That's when we can be confident that the church has let, it, uh, let the Bible be read into us, not us living out our lives and our perspectives into what we want the Bible to say. Okay, so we're talking about how do we not take a passage out of context? How do we know what the context is of a particular passage so that we don't take it out of context? Another sure way that we can do that is to to ensure that we're not just getting like TikTok internet theology here, but that we're actually seeing what God's word wants us to see, and that is to read it in different translations. Not, I'm not, not necessarily different languages, although good on you, if you can, if, you're, if you know how to read Hebrew, if you know how to read Greek or, or Aramaic. I'm talking about not different languages, but different translations done by credible Bible translators and scholars. See, the, the phrasing that different translators use in those different translations can often, very often, help a troubling verse make sense for us. And you don't need a whole collection of Bibles of every kind of translation like I've got in my office. As long as you're using a respected and recognized version. And you don't need all kinds of commentaries and like I have my office. Because on top of all of that, and that one wall looks really smart. I look really intelligent with that one wall. But I have this app on my phone called YouVersion. 
right? version has this feature when you're reading along, doing your devos, and you, and you go like, what does that even mean? What is that? Why would they use that word? There's this little button, compare. You click compare, and then a bunch of different translations all come up of that particular verse that you've highlighted. And you can look at it, and you, okay, oh, I see what's happening here. Compare. If you have the Uversion app, use the compare feature. This is going to help you read in, in more context and clearly. But let's put that into practice. Again, whether you've got a collection of print Bibles, whether you've got the Bible app. I mentioned Proverbs 9.10 earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. As I said, we're struggling this morning with that word fear. What's that word mean for us? So I turn to the King James Version. And that verse begins, the fear of the Lord. Okay? That didn't work. New American Standard Version I turned to. It begins, the fear of the Lord. Okay. New Living Translation, NLT. The fear of the Lord. But then I got to the Amplified Version of the Bible. And this verse says in the Amplified Bible, the reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord. Okay, you see, now we're getting somewhere with what's being communicated in the Word of God. The, the translation still uses that potentially troubling word fear, but those translators have provided us some qualifying, some, some descriptive words that are extremely helpful in our fully understanding what this text is saying, but more than that, so that we can apply it fully to our lives. With the inclusion of words like reverent, worshipful, that's when we start to see better what's being described by the various translators when they start telling us about the fear of the Lord. What we're starting to see is how the word fear, as it's used in these verses, is really about being in awe of God, being not afraid of Him, standing in wonder, standing in amazement, standing in admiration and respect. Why? Because He's God. This is, this is the God who created everything that ever existed by just saying, I want it to exist. And now it exists. That God. We're constrained by time. He's outside of time. That God. He's eternal. Always has been from the beginning. Always will be after the end. He's Alpha. He's Omega. He's above every nation, every ruler, every philosophy, every worldview. He's the judge and he's the defender. He's the thirst and he's the stream. He's the hunger and he's the manna that we get every day. He's the king and he's so much more. And so he's not a God that we ought to ever treat flippantly or carelessly. Instead, the Bible repeatedly says we should come before him with reverence, with praise, with awe, with wonder. We would be wise to quake in the presence of God, but not out of fear, not out of being afraid, not because we're scared, 
but because of the sheer magnitude of his almighty greatness. Which then circles us back to this morning's submission in this series. By doing some work, by letting the Bible speak into our experience rather than imparting what we think our experience is into what the Bible is saying, we've become much more equipped now to apply these verses in question as they were meant to be applied. Fear. The fear of the Lord. Fear in this verse means a loving reverence for God that includes finding delight in praising Him, in worshiping Him, just as He delights in our worship. The fear of the Lord depicted in this verse is rooted in our full submission to His Lordship in every area of our lives. And so that, to answer the, kind of the second half of today's question, that's how we live out a godly fear. We don't reverence God when we hide from Him, or when we avoid Him, or when we pencil Him in somewhere down the list of our to-dos today. We venerate Him, we adore Him as we ought, we live out a godly fear commanded of us when we put Him at the top of the priorities, because He's God. And to do that, the Bible says, to do that, that's wisdom. It's the smartest thing that we can do in every aspect of our lives to acknowledge the breathtaking awesomeness of God. And we'll know that truth at our core when we decidedly and ongoingly draw near to Him with our worship and with our praise because He's the only one awesome enough to, de uh, to deserve all that we can bring to Him. I knew an elderly lady one time who was really annoyed by what she saw was this modern-day trend of calling everything that is the least bit likable awesome. And it didn't matter if I was talking about, like, a car, if I was talking about a flavor of ice cream, if I was talking about a song. If I said, that's awesome, she would always say the same thing. She'd just look at me and she'd go, only God is awesome. Everything else is just good. Smart lady. I still say awesome all the time, though. Sorry, Peg Bell. She was right. Peg was right. If everything and everyone is awesome, like the Lego movie taught us, then nothing is awesome. And no one is awesome. But the scriptures, the scriptures testify page after page after page that our God is an awesome God. And to know that and to draw close to him in reverence and adoration and serious respect, well, that's something that demonstrates a healthy and appropriate and lived out loud biblical fear of the Lord, which, as the Bible says, Job 28, 28, Psalm 111, 10, Proverbs 9, 10, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So what I'm saying this morning is that living out godly fear is an ongoing and very personal journey. It involves continuous, spirit-led effort to deepen one's relationship with God, to align one's whole life around faith in Christ and to live out that faith in a manner that points the world around us to an awesome God. 
The God of the Bible is not one before whom we are to be paralyzed with fright or fear or horror and afraid to engage with. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, say to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is is light. And that's God's expression of his deep love and concern for us. And in order to respond to that appropriately, to be reverent, to stand in awe of God, to delight in wonder at his perfect ways, for all that I've said this morning to make sense to any of us, we have to seek to know him more personally and more intimately. Remember the words of God's messengers in Scripture each time they engaged someone on God's behalf. What were the first two words? Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Instead, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching Podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca, today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.